Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 102. I'm Aaron, and here with me to talk about giant robots punching giant robots, um, I mean, monsters, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, what's up, everybody? Back in episode 64, we had a fun conversation about Guillermo del Toro's awesome science fiction, fantasy, live-action anime film, Pacific Rim. And so now we gather again to discuss its recently released sequel, Pacific Rim Uprising. Patrick, buddy, this is going to be an interesting episode, I think. Fun, probably, but interesting. Before we get started, have you been watching anything that you want to recommend that you've enjoyed? Yeah, I actually I actually have. But first, I want to congratulate you on once again being able to pronounce Guillermo del Toro's, see, I can't even say it, his full name. I think that's a very tough name in Hollywood to, to pronounce. So good job on... Completely. I think it's actually Guillermo... And I'm Did probably you, wrong the first time. Guillermo del Toro. That's what it is, I think, right? <laughs> I, I probably failed because I didn't say Oscar winner. It's kind of like failing to put sir in front of someone's name. Whatever. This was not <laughs> a winner. So I'm going to give it only when he's... <laughs> he's been an Oscar winner before, hasn't he? Or is this the first time? With, uh, he definitely wasn't him. a best director. I don't think he might okay. have won something for Pan's Labyrinth. I'm not sure. Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah. So speaking of things that we have watched this week, I got a chance to watch uh, Steven Spielberg, one of his very first movies. It's a, actually a made for TV movie, which doesn't build well for most films that are out there, but I was really, really impressed with it. It's a movie called Duel. came out in 1971. And um, at the time, I actually didn't know that it was a made for TV movie. I was glad I didn't because I probably would have put unjustified criticism on it before even watching it, um, which is unfair. I mean, it really is. I think made-for-TV movies get a lot of um, unfair criticism. Some is legit, but some's not. That's not what I'm here to talk about, though. It's a it's a movie. It was one of his first that he directed, and it stars Dennis Weaver as a guy named David Mann. And essentially, it's a big, giant car chase. It's about a guy who is leaving his house for the day to go on... I guess it's a long business trip. He's traveling somewhere to to meet a client, but apparently it's across the state because there are these long shots of him just driving and driving and driving to set up the movie. And he eventually gets uh, behind a big rig and tries to pass him, eventually does pass him. The big rig comes up behind him again and passes him. And it's like a big giant road rage for about two hours. <laughs> and it's one of these movies that... If it had a star, it's not the actors. It's really about the sound editing and sound mixing. And this is something I don't say at all, really, about movies. I I watched this movie with my headphones on at a not an incredibly loud decibel level, but pretty, pretty involved to try to get a more theatrical experience. And what you find is that you have these great use of road sounds, like the the diesel engine you've got the horn from the from the truck you've got the loud traffic and the all the different sounds from the road that go to enhance the tension that's in this movie the only real dialogue that actually happens uh, comes from 
him in a conversation with his wife on the phone, his conversation with uh, some diner uh, diner customers here and there. But the whole movie is really kind of open to interpretation as far as like what it's about. It's got its obvious plot point. This guy's being stalked by a diesel driver, but you never see the guy's face. You never see anything about him other than some boots here and there walking around when they're at a, a gas station, an arm out the window telling him to pass him before you know veering in front of him. But I love the tension in it. I love the fact that it's it's a movie that kind of immerses you slowly. It's a very slow burn. But then when the energy level starts rising, it it rises very legitimately. Like you're kind of in the driver's seat with this main character and you get a chance to feel some of that tension with them. And we've all experienced that car that's on the road that slows down and we try to pass and we do pass. And then it comes around and tries to pass us again and slows down. I mean, it's just very frustrating. And I think what Steven Spielberg does is this is actually a, um, a Richard Matheson short story that was turned into this, this movie. And so Matheson was both the story author as well as the screenplay. So there's no, being that there's not a lot of dialogue, I think, I don't know if he had much of a, much of a hand in that, but it's, it's incredibly interesting. And for a movie that came out in 1971, I think it really, really holds up in terms of its uh, thrill factor. It's a different kind of thriller. It's, it gives you some insight into Steven Spielberg's directing uh, vision and how he used some of these elements in his later movies, but it's definitely worth checking out. Like I said, it's, it's something that it's different, but it's at the same time, very much accessible and very much uh, worth checking out. If you're a Steven Spielberg fan. Nice. I had not ever even heard of that. I didn't know it existed. My, so. my, my coworker who I talk about movies with all the time, it's his favorite Steven Spielberg movie. So I had to give it a shot. And I, you know, some people, you know, some people, like what they like. <laughs> that sounds like one of those somewhat like pretentious picks where it's like, oh, I'm I'm gonna be different. I'm gonna be unique. I'm gonna be a hipster, <laughs> and I'm gonna say that Duel in 1971 is my favorite Steven Spielberg movies. And out of, of all of the incredible work that he's done, well, he can he can back it up. I mean, he's I, I respect him because he's a filmmaker too, and so I respect um, I, I respect him from that point of view. I don't okay. think he's being pretentious. Although when I mentioned. Pacific Rim Uprising, he kind of rolled his eyes a little bit. Yeah, well, <laughs> so. we may too. Who knows? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> so what about you? What have you been up to this week? Well, I got to see a really good movie this week, and uh, it's called Isle of Dogs. <laughs> and I, I didn't have a lot of excitement for this until maybe the last month or so of the year. This is Wes Anderson's newest film, the well-known kind of eccentric and whimsical director films like the grand Budapest hotel, the life aquatic with Steve Zizou, um, the Darjeeling limited, the Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, the list goes on. Uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox was his previous stop motion animation movie. And it was the only one that I actually remembered liking of Wes Anderson's filmography. So prior to seeing I love dogs, I rewatched Fantastic Mr. Fox and was reminded why I really enjoyed it. I think that film is incredible. And then I went and saw Isla Dogs, and it is a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's really an adventure story at heart. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's set in this fictional future Japan dystopian society. 
Uh, it's got a historical background that it begins with, with the Japanese Kobayashi dynasty. They're kind of a cat loving society. And it tells the story of how the dogs were almost wiped out from the earth. It's got like, you know, fun stuff where cats are attacking the dogs. But the this young samurai boy appears and ends up taking out the Kobayashi leaders and saving the dogs. And so centuries pass and dogs regain their rightful place as man's best friend at his side and until, uh, you know, the future. And now we've been overtaken in the city. The city's called Megasaki City. And there is an epidemic of dog flu and snout fever. And dogs are kind of being pushed away from families. And so there's all these questions about, you know, what is causing these epidemics? Is this natural? The mayor, who's a cat guy, reacts by wanting to deport all of the dogs to Trash Island in an effort to supposedly keep the city healthy. But, of course, they have other reasons. A young boy, the mayor's uh, nephew, who he's taken in, ends up landing on Trash Island with his little plane. He flies it over there to go find his missing dog spots and at that point it's just an adventure story on trash island where uh, this young boy uh, whose name is um atari he is looking for spots and he ends up interacting with a pack of dogs led by a dog named chief who is voiced by brian cranston and and he has this whole pack with him of of dogs with edward norton's voice bill murray's voice jeff goldblum's voice it's wonderful they provide so much in just these limited roles. And if, if anybody's a Wes Anderson fan, you know these actors I'm mentioning. Many of them are reoccurring actors in his filmography. He's one of those directors who likes to bring these people back. And the movie is just a joyful watch. Um, it's got that typical Wes Anderson style to it. It's got a dry wit about it, but very adorable humor. It's really a minimalistic screenplay with an awesome score behind it, but they don't say a whole lot. Uh, the boy actually speaks in Japanese the entire film, all except for like one thing he says in English at the very end of the movie. And it's very important and impactful, the words he chooses to say in English. But the rest of the film, even all of the other Japanese in the film is translated, but not what the boy is saying. And I think it gives the film a really cool element where the dogs and the boy are understanding each other and the audience is very aware of what is taking place. They, we know completely what feelings are being expressed by the pictures we see in the dog and the, the young boy, the animation's amazing. And I just loved it. It's, it's kind of like a coming of age tale in a lot of ways. And it's got some underpinnings of society issues that are being discussed. Things like nationalism, you know, I, I think it's probably my number two film of the year at this point, honestly, right behind Paddington two. It's, it's up there. I want to see it again as soon as possible. Uh, I'm anxious to rush out to the theater as soon as it drops a uh, wide release and go check it out. And so I highly, highly recommend. I love dogs. Well, I'm not going to say no to any movie where dogs are the centerpiece of a, of a movie. So and I, I think that Wes Anderson, it's interesting to see him in the stop animation role. Would you say that Isle of Dogs fits with his overall style uh, in comparison to some of his live action? Well, yeah, I think it does. It's 
it's definitely got his feeling to it. I mean, it's a little bit less perfectly symmetrical as some of his films have been. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still, I mean, the technical piece of his filmmaking is always marvelous. It's always perfection. And, and that is here as well. And I think that the, one of the neat things about this is my child who went with me was able to pick up on it and really enjoy it from a kid's perspective. But I kind of dug some more depth out of it as an adult. And that's the same thing that happens in fantastic Mr. Fox. So he's making animated movies that kids can love and enjoy, but that there is a meat to, if you want to spend the time to think about it and actually give it your full attention beyond just looking at the cute fluffy animals that are on screen. Yeah. Definitely gives it it a high reach watchability for sure. And all this is coming from a cat guy. So, you know, this is high praise because I'm a, I I don't even have a dog and and I loved it. It made me want to go buy a a dog immediately. I wanted to have a dog. So I felt jealous that I don't have my own spots or chief. But the other thing that it did is it set me off on this path over the course of about seven days last week of watching through Wes Anderson's entire filmography. So all nine movies I saw in about a seven day span, that was an amazing experience. I don't know what planet I was on where I didn't like his movies, but I wrote in one of my reviews for uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I had previously given it two and a half stars. And my opening line to my new review was, whatever 2014 Aaron was doing, I'm ashamed of him because he just didn't get it. Uh, But 2018 Aaron gets it. And Wes Anderson is an amazing filmmaker. And whether you can take or enjoy his unique sensibilities I understand that there's going to be divisiveness there and that some people aren't going to be able to do that. But for me, everything has worked this time around. Not a single one of his films has been beneath like a four star level for me. They're all awesome. And because of that, I've been talking to you about it, of course, and uh, we are going to announce officially because this is going to make us be held to it. So that's why I'm announcing it right now that We are going to kind of change things up on our schedule a little bit. And in August, we are going to do a Wes Anderson director month. And not only are we going to do just our four main episodes, but we're going to go through the entire filmography. So we'll probably do a few episodes where we've recorded them early just to make sure we can bang these out. But we're going to cover all. I said initially we were going to cover eight, not counting Bottle Rocket, because that would that's his his debut but I'm a little iffy on that. So we might, we might try and squeeze in all nine because it's eight, nine, you know, basically the same number. (laughs) Uh, So we'll see how that goes, but we are going to cover, you know, at least the most recent eight Wes Anderson films. So if you're a Wes Anderson fan, you should get excited now for August. It's coming and it's going to be a lot of fun. Very cool, man. I have been not as much on board with Wes Anderson as you have, but then I haven't watched these films like in there, like in this just kind of box of like, boom, 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 boom. So it's been a while since I've seen a Wes Anderson movie. I think the life aquatic was my last visit and uh, bottle rocket was actually my first entry into, into his filmography. So to get a chance to see a number of these for the first time and revisit the ones that I have already seen is going to be a lot of fun. I think so too. All right. Well, with that all out of the way, it's time to get into the robots. I think. Our typical spoiler warning, we'll put that out there right now. 
we are going to spoil this movie. And there is something to be spoiled in this movie. There is a plot twist. So if you have not seen Pacific Rim Uprising and you have an intention of going to see Pacific Rim Uprising, turn away now. Come back later after you've gone and seen it. But now, Patrick, one word takeaways. I'm really interested in this one. This is going to be a fun movie to talk about. So what did you come up with? Well, there was... No question for me. The one word takeaway for me was spectacle. And uh, as I mentioned before, talking to my my coworker about this, his kind of, I'll paraphrase his quote. He said, I don't like those kinds of movies where spectacle is the centerpiece. And I wanted to respond, I get that, but the original had a lot more going for it than just that. I mean, yes, there's giant robots fighting aliens, but there's a really cool plot that goes along with that. And so I expected it to be more of the same. <sighs> Unfortunately, it was pretty much what he predicted. And it was so much fun to look at. I think you mentioned in your review that it's worth seeing in the theater. And there is no doubt about it. In fact, when I bought my ticket, usually I sit on the back row uh, because I like just being able to pick my pick my seat pretty easily. And most people don't pick the back row. Uh, this time in particular, though, I picked the row right behind the the handicap section. And so I'd have like a full, just a more immersive scene experience. Um, and it definitely enhanced my movie experience, but it, it just wasn't enough for me to say I really enjoyed it. Like for me, it was just okay. And I want to emphasize the, those two words for me, because that's got to be very important when it comes to the subjectivity of the movie experience. I think that movies like this really challenge me because I want to find greatness or at least real goodness in every movie I watch. And some of that is driven by the fact that I put money into these things. Um, another is the fact that we talk about these movies every week. And so there's probably some kind of unnecessary pressure to like everything that we see, but we've, I mean, we've gone on record as saying our show is about positive honesty. And this is probably the first time that I've walked away from a movie going, man, that just didn't do it for me. I liked what I saw, but I didn't really like what I experienced. Um, and I, I wanted to pull up a quote from friend of the show, Scott Kelly. In his review of it, he says, there's a scene in the world building introduction of Pacific Rim Uprising that has a main character literally trading an Oscar statue for a box of cereal. Yes, an award that signifies the best of the best in the world of film is exchanged for a big bag of sugar. If that doesn't help you set up your expectations for this film, Nothing will. And I, I think that pretty much kind of summed up my movie experience of Uprising was that I got a real big bag of sugar and now I need to go exercise to kind of work it off a little bit because it was just kind of, it was kind of cool in the moment, but I kind of feel guilty after watching it. <laughs> Interesting. I, maybe your one more takeaway should have been sugar. I, um, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Well, Mine was a little bit different, I think. I I went with the word committed for this one, and I think that's because the first thing I came out and said to our press agent who was taking notes was that this movie was 110% what it wanted to be, and there was no question about that. I used to think that Pacific Rim was a live-action anime, and in some ways, that's still very much true. But I think that the sequel ratchets that stylistic comparison up to 11. I've also heard it referred to as a Saturday morning cartoon. And in a lot of ways, 
it does hit those notes as well. But I think that the dialogue in particular for me really made it feel like an anime series. Um, They have these over-the-top characters, this really cheesy dialogue, this silly acting, and a huge lack of realistic situations in favor for the spectacle, to use your word, what looks cool. They do a lot of extreme facial close-ups with uh, dialogue scenes, and there's just a big, 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 big action. That's actually one of the, I guess, kind of a little bit confusing pieces of this movie for me was that I wanted more action constantly said that after Pacific Rim, I was like, show me more, give me more battles. But in actually getting that, it gave me none of the emotional context I needed to care about them. (laughs) And so it worked against it, even though it essentially met my expectations in a lot of ways, if that makes sense. So I, I think Pacific Rim uprising and Stephen Denight, the director, I, I really feel like they made the movie that they wanted to make. And you're either going to like it or you're not. But yeah. it's 100% what they were seeking out to do. And I found it to be pretty enjoyable. I definitely lacking in emotional depth and any kind of moment that would make it memorable. But I respect what their commitment to the style was. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, as time has passed... I have forgotten more and more of this movie and I remember so very little about it detail wise. It was in one eyeball. <laughs> that was a bad analogy. It was going to be, <laughs> I was going to say ear, but uh, it was in my eyeballs and then it was out of my eyeballs. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that before we get into the details of this movie, just yeah. that experience of enjoying it in the moment i I enjoyed it in the moment my theater patrick was going nuts okay so this is a preview screening where people are brought in to review the movie kind of early and give those initial impressions to the studio reps so they know what to expect along with the press and so that's largely going to be fans it's almost like a, a you know like a thursday night showing would be an opening night screening right these people were hooping and hollering and cheering and joking and laughing and screaming. And they had a great time. It seemed like I was caught up in that and I had a fun time. My son and I kept looking at each other and giggling and laughing. But literally by the time I got to my house, I had forgotten about it. Is there a place for that in Hollywood? Is that okay? I think there is. I mean, I think the fact is we mentioned that movies are meant to entertain us. And if you had a reaction like that, then absolutely it's legitimate. It's the reason the summer blockbuster exists. There are movies out there that are forgettable to a lot of people. But in the moment, especially during the summer months when that's what they do, they go to the theater, that's where their value is. I mean, you're going to hear me say something that you can, you guys can just hit the, hit the record button or you can just hit the replay button or whatever. But this is where Michael Bay shines because he creates that kind of spectacle in his movies that are for me, very forgettable and almost to a point of being kind of just perturbed. But in the moment, I mean, you're caught up in it. I mean, you're like, Oh my gosh, look at all this stuff. And you're having a great time. And there's something about in the moment experiences that do have value from the movie experience. And this is why movies like this need to be seen on the big screen. These are movies that consequently are not movies that you want to rent after you've seen them necessarily, because they don't have a high rewatch ability. 
but their watchability, their ability to give you that, that high, if you will, that cinematic high, I think is very much valuable because that's part of the reason people go to movies. They, they go to movies not to remember they go to movies to forget. And I personally don't necessarily agree with that kind of philosophy, but I get why people do that. Movies are very much a sense of escape for a lot of people and Pacific Rim uprising at the very least does that. It makes you forget your world you live in for just under two hours. Absolutely true. And I agree wholeheartedly with you. And so how do we evaluate these movies? Because that's what we're about to kind of discuss is our feelings about the movie. But if we were, you know, writing a review as typical press do and as I do, how do we do that? Like, how do we go see this movie and then bottle that experience that we had with the critical truth of this is not something you're going to remember because it's not meant to be in a lot of ways. Um, how does that, like, how does that work in a rating in a world that is so obsessed with rating systems? How do we do that? How do we marry those two things to where someone can see the rating for Pacific Rim is a three as let's just throw out a three and know what that means. Is, is there ever going to be a way to do that? Absolutely. Very subjectively, but absolutely. And when it comes to film criticism in general, I think the biggest, the biggest rule that we have to apply to reading film criticism, or at least the biggest observation is that it is subjective, that each person is going to have a unique movie experience in the context of that, uh, that moment. Uh, seeing something on a Thursday night, for instance, when you're very tired. And that, I mean, that's part of, I admit that's part of what influenced my reaction to the film. I, I was, I was, I was tired. I had a long day at work and uh, I wanted to, I wanted to watch this movie um, at a time when I had uh, my family was out of town. And so seven 30 on a Thursday night felt like a great opportunity to do that, but work kind of wore me out. And so I fully admit that it's not the ideal time to see it when you're kind of worn out and you want to just kind of go relax. So there's a, there's a sense of, subjectivity that needs to be taken when either writing your review or reading someone else's review and expecting some subject, some subjectivity. It's probably why you and I would say the one thing is go see these movies yourself because film criticism gives an audience or gives a person reading a chance to do one of two things. Either it recommends and it informs and both of those things help a person understand whether or not they should see a movie in the theater or wait till they get home. So for something like Pacific Rim Uprising, I think a legitimate film review would be, this is a fantastic movie to see in the theater at least once. And it's also one that you shouldn't expect a lot of depth in terms of character development and a pretty basic story. But if you like spectacle, if you like crazy anime styles, then go see this because it's a fantastic experience. And so what you have is, I think, probably an attempt at being as objective as you can by saying the movie is forgettable, but in the moment it's worth experiencing. Yeah, I would agree too. And I think that the key that I will point out is read reviews. Do not just look at the rating. And that is where the world today seems to kind of be going is, uh, you know, I see this online in groups all the time. They're not reading the reviews. They're looking at the number. And we've talked about how it's hard to, you almost want to take them away. You almost want to do 
film criticism where you don't give it a number because it's so frustrating for someone just to look at it and kind of try to assume what you meant by your three star, your two and a half star rating. When if you actually read that review, you'd read, hey, this is a movie for you. And here's why it's for you. Oh, it's because it matches something that I really enjoy. Uh, but maybe it didn't match what the other person was looking for. And I think it is definitely important to critique this kind of film against its intentions and not against Tomb Raider that had different intentions. Tomb Raider wanted to give us an emotional story. It starts off with a character development story that is trying to be deeper. Uh, this one does it, it does kind of start off with a character development story, but it's it's a joke. The whole thing is a joke. Uh, and so it's got a whole different tone to it. I think we need to keep in mind what the intention of the film is and not try to project what we wanted it to be and evaluate yeah. it that way. Does that make sense? It does. And it's difficult. It's difficult because of the fact that we're talking about a movie that exists as part of a franchise. Now, this is a sequel. This is a follow-up. We have already been introduced to the world of uh, Pacific Rim. And so by having that, you know what, we're going to have those, we're going to have those comparisons. It's unfortunate. Um, but if you, if you were to give us this movie separate from its predecessor, I think you'd get m maybe more of a positive response because we're getting that spectacle without necessarily having a bar that was set by a previous movie, uh, with a performance by Idris Elba with an emotional experience attacked onto it. I mean, you expect sequels to be better than the original. That's kind of what happens. And when a sequel sort of either hits the same notes or is less invigorating, I don't know what the word would be, you, you're kind of left kind of unintentionally comparing it. Well, that wasn't as good as the first one. Okay. But in some ways, that's kind of like taking a, a director who directs two films and comparing both of them you know, one to the other, even though they're not even related, you know, so you have like Alex Garland with Annihilation and you're going to have folks who are going to say, well, you know, it's not as good as Ex Machina. Well, okay, but where is your apples to apples comparison outside of the fact that it's directed by the same person? I mean, it's a different story altogether. It's sci-fi. Okay. That's one thing, but you get, but you get yourself in a position where you are making almost unnecessary or unfair comparisons. But when it comes to a thing like Pacific Rim Uprising, you have a leg legitimate comparison. You have something to compare it to in the form of an original movie. Agreed. And that's a fair comparison. So let's talk about the story and how it compares and what we thought of it. The opening sequence that I mentioned to me really defined what I was in for. And I, I appreciated it for that because it starts off with basically a recap in voiceover of the entire events of Pacific Rim. So that if you haven't seen Pacific Rim, you'd be kind of caught up essentially. And then it instantly falls into introducing us to John Boyega's character, Jake, by this joke montage of all these things with him trading the Oscar for cereal and partying. And, and what we find out as this progresses is that he's clearly trying to put away his his past. He doesn't want to be recognized as who he is. Um, there is a great line when he actually meets uh, Amara. What's her name? Amara. And 
she finds out who he is and she says, did he say Pentecost? And Jake's response is, it's just the name. And this is kind of where the only emotional depth I got out of the film comes from is this whole concept throughout it of Jake is trying to find his identity that is separated from his father. His father is the hero played by Idris Elba who sacrificed himself to close the breach and save the world from the precursor kaiju invasion. Okay. So you got to live up to that. That's a lot. And he's washed out of the Academy several times. I cannot help this entire film, but make a Maverick comparison. Jake is Maverick. Uh, Scott Eastwood's character, Nate is very much Iceman. Uh, in this film, there are several scenes between the two of them that I literally felt like could have just been ripped out of Top Gun. And I, I see similarities there. And, and I think it's on a lower, you know, a lesser scale in the writing, but it's there. And it's, it's somewhat intriguing. We also have Amara Namani, who's this orphan that we meet and we meet her. She wanted to build this Jaeger, which is really cool, by the way. Thought it was a Transformers movie for a second because that little scrapper guy was rolling around. That was one of my favorite sequences. I, I thought that was a, a really neat uh, giant robot Jaeger that, well, because he was a little, little bitty giant, I guess, if that isn't too confusing. But compared to the like security Jaeger, holy cow, that thing was gigantic. So, I, I mean, that was fun. I, I don't know. What did you, what did you, there's some other things I picked up on, but what did you pick up on emotionally out of the story? Was there like, these are the story beats I kind of noticed. Well, there was definitely the relationship between between him and her. I thought they that was a, a fantastic just team up and the way they met. Uh, she reminded me of a really young Katniss just with her just kind of, or I guess Jennifer Lawrence in general, but I guess maybe closely her role as Katniss. Maybe she kind of resembled Jennifer Lawrence in, in a way. But I think for me, I love, I really enjoyed the way the movie started out because it definitely set that tone. And the fact that we got some of that world building, uh, we mentioned in the Pacific Rim review, how we, we got a history of what had taken place that led to the events of what we saw in Pacific Rim. And we wanted more of that. We got hints of like fallen heroes and it kind of gave us this idea of, man, this would be a cool kind of TV series to kind of explore the events of what took place. And so visually it was very, <laughs> I laughed out loud when I see him giving the voiceover or hear him giving the voiceover as the camera pans back from this, from this mansion. And it looks like he's just having a party and it turns out that he's just a squatter in a half, you know, a half destroyed mansion. And it really sets the tone and it tells us what the world is like. I mean, we're 10 years removed and and that's difficult to do. I think we've, we've talked a little bit about a story. Does it make a logical leap forward? Blade Runner 2049. I asked that question. Is that a logical extension of its original? Uh, We talked about Tron legacy in relation to its original. Does it make that logical leap forward? I, I think it sort of does with, with this one because it kind of gives it distance. I mean, we were definitely as an audience far enough removed from Pacific Rim that we need to kind of bridge that gap. And I think this opening sequence does that. Him introducing us getting introduced to Amara, I think gives us um, this new sense of recruits and a new set of characters to appreciate because Pacific Rim, we lost a couple of our main characters. We lost um, significant people that would have been fantastic in a sequel, 
but obviously they can't because they're dead. Um, sorry, spoiler alert for Pacific Rim. Um, but we get the beginnings of what could be a brand new cast that we could kind of fall in love with in the similar way that I think I hoped with the star Wars franchise, we don't have to keep calling back to original characters. We now get new people that we can fall in love with. So I, I didn't really connect emotionally with a lot of them, but I, I kind of connected emotionally with the potential for, for those, for those characters. Whoa. Okay. That seems like a, no, I don't know. It sounds like kind of like a, almost like a backhanded, like I'm trying to be nice. I, and, I have no, and, I have no apologies in saying I didn't see much in there. And well, no, I didn't either. I mean, I don't lot. think there's anything wrong with it, that. There were the beginnings of a lot of these things, and that's probably where one of my criticisms comes in: is that you start doing something, and then you move on to the next thing. You start doing that, and you move on to the next thing. So I didn't get a lot of chance. I didn't get a big chance to fall in love with any one of these characters because there wasn't a lot of stuff going on. They didn't have much of an arc. I felt like they were half arcs for most of these guys. Boyega, I think has one that it's sort of it's sort of forced it's like okay this is who i am this is who i was gonna be and now this is who i will be that kind of thing and it's more stated than shown to me i didn't see a lot of his arc was the strongest but by comparison to other movies it was a very weak story uh character arc that's what i, I was getting completely at. agree and i see that with the exterior cast aside from jake and amana amana why well, I, I can't talk about her i can't say her name for some reason. amara with the exception of those two, the main two, the other cadets, I couldn't tell you anything about them other than there was a Russian girl who was mean at first and then became nice in the end and respected Amara. And that was like, that's it. Like, I didn't cry when any of them died. I don't feel like the movie gave us much reason to. It didn't even blink in a lot of ways when some of them passed away. They, I just didn't get to know them well enough to care at all. And then, you know, this idea that they're the only people that are on the planet, there's this entire barracks. This is where the realism going out the window. It's a, it's a double-edged sword because we're talking about a fantasy film with giant freaking robots, punching giant freaking monsters and giant freaking robots who are piloted by monster brains. So it's crazy. And I'm worried about the fact that only these few cadets are the ones trying to save the world. When there's this whole shatter dome full of apparently a full of Jaegers and pilots, like where are they at? Where are we, where are we doing here? Why are we using those people? So some of that does kind of bother me and it made it tougher for me to connect with as well. I, I do like that Jake had an arc and was trying to live up to, to his father. Uh, and I think that the closest I got to maybe a connecting point is the final scene in some ways because he has a snowball fight with Amara and it just gave me a sense of this is a man who now is okay with who he is and he can be a friend. He can be a mentor and he has accepted that that's okay. That's a, it's a solid life, you know, goal. It's okay. to It's he's, he's a success now, but Man, I just don't I don't have those moments where I was like moved from this movie. Well, and and that's a legitimate criticism because we had those moments from the original and we had some of that spectacle. And I think you have to make a trade-off at some point. You know, if you want more fights, you want more action, you're going to sacrifice some things otherwise this thing turns into a 
two and a half, three hour movie. And I wish that we had gotten more character development personally, because for me, the action sequences in the original were satisfying. They left me wanting more, but it was like leaving me wanting more from a, from a movie that has a cliffhanger or a movie that, that ends in a satisfying way, but kind of leaves you imagining more. And I almost didn't want to revisit Pacific Rim because I felt like that film as a whole had a beginning, middle and end. It felt satisfying. And when you add on to it, you're risking doing the thing that you don't want to do, which is cheapening the property. And in some ways I felt like the property was cheapened with this, even though we got more of what we, it's like, you wish what you, you get your wish, but your wish isn't really what you wanted. You regret it in the end. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I definitely wish this didn't exist though. I, I mean, I enjoyed it, like I said, for those two hours, but I would gladly, gladly give those up for this not to exist. Luckily I have Pacific Rim. It doesn't change that movie's all time place in my love of movies. And I will watch it again and just pretend that nothing happens afterwards. Um, but what does happen afterwards is kind of crazy. And that's, that's one of the wild things about this one I want to discuss. It's got two different elements to it that I found interesting. One is that there's this corporation called the Shao Corporation, who is essentially trying to corporatize defense of against the Kaiju. They are creating this army of remote control piloted drones, very similar to how we fight wars in the modern day where we've transitioned from face-to-face battle uh, and meeting on a hill and running into each other with axes into pushing a button from 25 miles away out in the middle of the ocean on an aircraft carrier and destroying you know, a city of 100,000 people. And that's kind of the concept that's being explored here, as well as the corporization side of it where it's a contract. You know, You're making money off of defending the world like it shouldn't be done out of the goodness of your heart and i i enjoyed that existence in this film and i would have liked an entire movie that explored a subplot that took that to its totality and really played it out i thought that it was going to go that way for a while i thought that the shao corporation was going to end up being evil and doing this intentionally and instead we got the fantasy plot where we have newt one of the doctors from the first two movies he you know drifted with a kaiju brain in order to find out how to seal the drift and it was successful the information he got was important but at the same time he gave the precursors access to information about us and apparently they have taken over his brain and now are using him to usher in this new plot where the kaiju, instead of trying to just destroy our cities one by one, are going to like commit suicide by jumping into Mount Fuji. And I don't even know how this is supposed to work. I, they tried to explain it, but I guess their blood mixes with the volcano and somehow blows up the earth. I, I don't know. Something happens like that. This, and this is this is this is where like a good idea kind of goes bad in terms of too much, too often, and just too confusing. I think what you have, what you just described, those two plot points could have been two separate movies altogether. And I think that both of them were intriguing enough that by combining them, you now, you now kind of lessen their impact because they were almost in conflict with each other. And Newton's character, I loved in the first one, but in this one, he just came across as like, 
eh, really? You did? No, no, I don't want to. No, I don't like you. And both of those characters, both him, him and Dr. Herman, I think were two of my favorites from the original. And to see their roles in this one, I thought that they didn't, I don't think they were used as effectively in this one. I, I felt like they didn't get enough screen time or maybe there wasn't enough emphasis on, uh, on Newton's stuff that he was doing, like being kind of invigorated by the, by the kaiju brain or, you know, having, you know, be, having drifted with, with the kaiju brain. But I think that when you have these two separate plot elements that are trying to push the movie forward, they, they become too much for me to absorb because I'm already watching a lot of crazy stuff happening on screen. I agree wholeheartedly. I would have enjoyed them much more separately. If this was a TV series and we were going through various different plots over the course of history and time. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. And each of these were individual storylines that would have been more intriguing to me than trying to cram them together. And I think, I think you're right. I think that they looked at fan response to Newt and Herm's characters and that relationship. And they did the typical Hollywood thing, which is, Oh, fans love that. So let's give that more importance. Let's, they let the response to the first film dictate kind of how the second film went in a lot of ways. Story-wise is what it seemed like to me. And, and I just didn't love that as much. I, it was crazy. Okay. Like it was wild. And part of me, I just have to applaud the nuttiness of when I saw a Kaiju brain inside of that Jaeger for the first time, that is something that is probably the one memorable thing from this movie for me is I was like, what? Like, it's like, uh, what's his face from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Uh, Krang yeah. is inside that thing, like piloting it. That's the first thing that came to mind. That was intriguing. Mm -hmm. But that plot got sillier and kind of stupider to me as it progressed. Well, it was definitely the biggest surprise of the movie for me is, is seeing that. And I thought that just like these other two plot points, now you have a third plot point that is already has so much intrigue, but now it's, now it's like in this like bumper car match with these other two that are already battling. And the only way to make those things memorable is to amp up the crazy factor. And at some point for your audience, you're just kind of sitting back and you're almost like watching a Deadpool movie where you're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to just sit back and just not even worry about any kind of plot element because you're so focused on battles and craziness that you you just kind of stop caring. And for guys like us that like the feeling portion of our movies, I think that's almost, it can be kind of like a slap in the face. Like we don't really care about these characters. We don't really care about a lot of the stuff. We're just kind of putting stuff together. I'm not saying that that wasn't pointless because I agree that I think the creators behind this, they knew what they were doing, but it was to the detriment of the film as a whole. And, and that's where I thought you really lost me because you had this really cool plot element and then it just got nuts and just didn't pay off. So the plot in this to me feels like it's definitely just kind of very loosely trying to string us together between action scenes. We mentioned, or I mentioned earlier how this one has a lot more of them and we do get Jaeger fighting Jaeger, which was a new thing uh, several times in the beginning. And then we get Jaeger fighting modified Jaeger slash Kaiju. And then we get Jaeger fighting giant uh, Thundercat Kaiju that was, I don't even 
and again, another like again, another cool storyline point that would have been neat to see played out uniquely. But when they just threw it together, it didn't have as much impact there at the end for me when the kaiju started molding itself together into different pieces of it, you know, and becoming a bigger, badder kaiju. Action scenes is where I'm going with this. What did you think about the action in this movie compared to the second or the previous film? Because that's a fair comparison. Oh my gosh. It was completely over the top good. I mean, this is one of those things where if I were just, I'm almost like watching battle bots or something like that, where I'm just, I'm just in it for the, I want you to win. I want this guy to win. I mean, this was really a, this was really like a boxing match for me in terms of just kind of, I wanted to put bets on, on different different Jaegers. I was like, my money's on this one or my money's on that one. Let's see what happens. Are they going to take him down with the, uh, with the sword? Are they going to take him down with the big giant, you know, propeller or whatever. And I think for me, the, the entertainment of that was, was enough to get me smiling. There was a couple sitting next to me that were just going nuts, having a great time with it, laughing and just like, yeah. And I mean, it really felt like we were watching a sporting event. A lot of times when these events took place, I, I think my favorite Overall, and again, I can't remember specifically, but it was when the gypsy, not gypsy danger, the gypsy, what's the, the, pre, uh, the, the follow, the follow up gypsy something. Avenger? I don't know. Avenger. Yeah. Gypsy Avenger. When we, we get gypsy Avenger fighting the, the other Jaeger that turns in, that's when we figure out that that Jaeger has a, has a brain in it or a, a kaiju brain in it. For me, that was probably my favorite, not only because it was the first time, I guess, we're seeing real Big Jaeger versus Big Jaeger, you know, the scrapper, we didn't, you know, that wasn't really, that was a cool scene, but it wasn't my favorite. But I think seeing the seeing the the action in that and adding that plot point was probably what made it the most memorable for me was was that particular battle. Yeah, I would agree. I really enjoyed that fight as well. And I think the other thing that I liked a lot about this one was just the various weapons that they have and they use from the very beginning. They don't hold back. They, that was one of the criticisms. Okay. Again, we're, I'm actually going to say there's a positive and a negative. The previous film, one of the big takeaways from fans was that you have this amazing chainsword. And you only use it one time in the whole movie. But that moment that that chainsword is used is so incredibly memorable in Pacific Rim. It's important to the plot because it's a last stand. You know what I'm talking about, right? When the plants yeah. puts the sword up and splits the stupid kaiju in half. I mean, it's yeah. you cannot forget that. So it's utilized minimally, but it's utilized powerfully. Here, we flip. We go quantity over quality to me there was no usage of the weapons that was so amazing that i even remember them being amazing i remember what the weapons are i thought they were cool the closest we came to something surprising me in the weapon department that i found interesting was the turret in the belly of one of the jaegers i was not expecting that and that kind of caught me off guard but dude i hate to say it they showed almost all or at least pieces of all of this action in the trailer minus the one that you really enjoyed the Jaeger versus Jaeger fight all the other stuff they show the pieces there's only one scene in the movie where they take off and they fly through the sky it's in the trailer you know and that is a bummer to me and if this is me plugging hey don't watch trailers you know take that as you will 
but it was a detriment because I didn't have as many aha, ooh, ah, wow moments because I'd already seen this stuff. Right. So one of the things that you mentioned the trailer that reminded me of something I've been, I've been going through a writing class and one of the lessons that, that I'm working through is plotting out a film and how you have these different acts. Everybody, everybody who's anybody who has a knowledge of films or stories knows there's a third, there's a first, second and third act. But this particular writing series talks about the fact that most of your trailer activity, like all of your trailer footage happens in the second act. And so there's kind of a danger when you start seeing most of your trailer footage in the third act, which is where we see a lot of this. Because what you're seeing is the wow factor. You're seeing the reveals. And I'm not blaming trailers for this by any means, because I think the companies that cut trailers are not the companies that make the movies. I don't know how much input a director or a writer or a cinematographer has with the trailer making companies. Uh, I think it's very little because the these companies are are being paid to get people to go see movies. So I'm not necessarily blaming the trailer creators for that. I am kind of putting a little criticism on the films where a person making a trailer thinks the best stuff that you're going to see is in the third act when it shouldn't be that case, right? Because that's where all your reveals happen. And you're right. I mean, I, I actually just watched the trailer again before we started recording tonight. And I was like, Oh, it's so awesome. But it was awesome in a two minute sequence. Like I got enough of a taste. I was like, that's, that's where the memory of it comes from. Exactly. When you see this overblown and overblown and overblown, it's like, okay, let's take a break. And that's what I, that's what I felt from that. Well, unless you have anything else uh, that we haven't really covered, uh, do you want to transition from overblown action and wackiness into our connecting points? We can try. I mean, we can try. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll go first. Go ahead. Yeah. Listen, I I don't have a connecting point. Okay. I'm not going to try and sugarcoat this. I am going to mention two quotes or two moments in the film that were single lines of dialogue or a couple of pieces of dialogue that were enough that I wrote them down when I was watching the movie. That is when the first one is when Jake is talking to um, Amara Armani after she gets kicked out after exploring the dead Jaeger Kaiju hybrid, she leads the cadets in and he gives her this piece of advice. He says, don't let what other people think of you define who you are. You won't like where that takes you. Fantastic piece of advice. Thematically doesn't really play out in any way in the film after that. Like it doesn't have an arc to it, to that comment uh, in my opinion. And so it didn't, really move me in any way, but I, it stuck out. I thought it was a good line. And then Jake's motivational speech where he's clearly trying to channel his father. This is a, the comparison scene to Idris Elba's big moment in Pacific Rim where he cancels the apocalypse. I, I mean, listen, they were never going to touch that. Okay. Wasn't going to happen. Jake says, we remember them as he's talking about those that have died. He's discussing, you know, his father and, and the crew. And he says, we remember them as greats because they stood tall. They started as cadets. Now help me save the world. Let's do this. It's terrible. Okay. Like I don't even know how it's motivational, but I thought it was true to his character that it starts off somewhat attempting to be this grandiose motivational speech and it just kind of devolves into him saying 
go team, let's do this. Right. And I, I felt like that was at least different. <laughs> and so I, that stuck out, I guess, but dude, there's, there's literally nothing in this movie. I told you before that I didn't care when anybody died. That's sad. I hate that. I cared when people died in Pacific Rim. Okay. I wish those characters had not passed on because I liked them and I would have liked to see more of them because I got to know them enough. That didn't happen in this movie at all. Uh, Scott Eastwood, he plays Scott Eastwood in every single movie. I, the entire film, his character, he's good at it, but I thought he was the same guy as he was in the Fast and the Furious and the same guy as he was in Suicide Squad. Like, it, I don't know, just no emotional resonance whatsoever. And that is what tanked my overall experience for this one. I don't know. What about you? Did you find one? No. And I'm okay to say that. And I don't want to, <laughs> I would say I don't want to sugarcoat it because the movie did enough of that for me in terms of just providing a lot of heavy action and just lots of, lots of visual fun. That doesn't negate the importance of why movies like this should exist. I think this is why we should go to movies primarily is to be entertained. And for a lot of people, this is good stuff. For me, it's not. I need more from my movies. I need a balance more than anything else. And in a lot of ways, I pulled away from this the same reaction that I pulled away from Thor Ragnarok. Granted, I laughed a lot more in Thor Ragnarok. I think the the writing was a lot better for my taste because there were a lot more jokes that I could laugh at. And But for me, this, like Thor Ragnarok, was a little bit more forgettable because... I already had a predisposition to what this universe was like and what these characters were like. And so not getting that I think was more of the disappointment than anything else. But I hearken back to that couple and to what you were talking about with regards to the, the, the fans that come out to those Thursday night showings, like come out to those early screenings. There's a place for movies like this and it may just be a one-time deal. And that's okay. I like the fact that we all have different opinions and we all have different tastes. Um, it's why I don't like the phrase guilty pleasure, because I think if you like something, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. And a movie like this didn't hit me in the feels like I wanted it to. And that's okay. It was entertaining and being forgettable is not necessarily a negative trait. It's just something that I won't really visit again. Here, here, man, here, here. Well, let's um, end this with the question of the hour, the final question that is, this definitely sets up a, a part three. There is no doubt about that they tease out what can happen in a sequel. Do you want it? Will you see it? I want a TV series. Okay. If there's a TV series, I'll see it, but probably not a theatrical release. No. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's going to, I don't either. Personally, I don't want it and I don't think it's going to happen. This movie did unseat Black Panther finally as the box office top draw uh, after my gosh, a month and a half. However, I think that after this opening weekend, this movie is going to fail miserably in the box office because of what we have just outlined and discussed throughout this show, which is no one's going to see this thing twice, you know? Uh, And if they do, it's going to be a very small subset of, people right the hardcore fans that want to go check it out in imax to see the big explosions that's not a word big explosions again uh multiple times and i just don't see it happening i don't think it's going to make its budget back and i don't think there's any way um 
last, I would say that John Boyega, to me, I really enjoyed him in this role. I, I enjoyed the potential of him. You brought up a potential earlier. I liked him more than I like him in Star Wars uh, okay. so far. I, I think can, that, yeah. I think that he c- could have anchored a, a franchise like this uh, in a different scenario, in a different story. To me, he's like he's like a black Han Solo in this. Like he's very much a a rogue guy with a, a nice history, being being the son of a of a hero. And I think that his potential is off the chart good. And as an as an actor, I think he brings a lot to that charismatic character. But um, unfortunately, the writing needs to elevate itself to meet his acting ability. Agreed. Well. Folks, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Pacific Rim Uprising uh, or any of our episodes that you listen to each and every week. You can do that by joining our Facebook discussion group. You can find a link to that in the show notes or on our website or by simply going to Facebook and typing in Feel and Film and you will find it. That is where people talk about movies all day, every day throughout the week. It's a great place. There's a good chunk of our listenership in there and we'd love to have more of you. It's it's fun and we'd like to know what you think about this and any other movies that you happen to be watching. If you'd like to interact with me directly, you can do that all over social media at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Just type that in and you'll probably find me. You'll find my Xbox profile as well. Uh, lastly, we would like reviews. We haven't really asked for them much. We don't do that, but it's always good. It helps us bump up in the public eye when people are searching for new film podcasts to look for. They see a lot of five-star reviews and they go, oh, hey, maybe I want to check that one out. So if you would like to do that for us, we'd appreciate it. You can do it on iTunes, on the Google Play Store, on Stitcher, anywhere you listen to our podcast. We would love for you to leave us a review, positive preferably, and uh, let the other listeners out there know what you think. And hopefully they can discover us and become part of the great group of feelers that we have developed. Patrick, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. On Twitter, you can find me in the Facebook group or just search for Patrick Hicks in Facebook, and we can talk about movies or any kind of entertainment related to film as a whole. Um, wanted to let you guys know that this week is going to be a pretty big one. We have our donor pick from February that we were unable to drop, uh, doing a double feature with that and our March donor pick. We're doing Crazy Stupid Love from February, and then we'll be talking about Lost in Translation uh, this month for our donor picks. And so be looking for those on Friday to drop. And if you're interested in being part of the voting process for getting those donor picks each month, uh, be sure to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash film for as little as a dollar a month. You have a hand in voting for the movies that we cover at least once a month. And, uh, you know, the more you donate, the more you can vote. So feel free to participate in that and find us there as well. Also, we're still in the theater. We're going to be visiting Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. I know it's one that you and I have both anticipated. We really, really enjoyed the book. We're both child's child, no children of the eighties. And so at the very least, I hope that we're going to get a nice little callback to a bunch of eighties references. The book gave it to us and hopefully the movie will do that justice at the very least. So we'll be covering that next week. So be sure to tune back in to check that out. Sounds like a plan. I know I'll be there. Wouldn't be much of a podcast if I wasn't, would it? No. 
I mean, I, I could do it, but I'm sure our listenership would drop off significantly. What is Ready Player One and not Ready Player One and Two? Did I say Ready Player One and Two? No. What? <laughs> I'm saying... <laughs> I'm saying if I'm not here, it becomes feeling film one instead of oh two. Okay. <laughs> hey, listeners, stay positive. And keep feeling film. <laughs>